Hi, I'm Pastor James, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church in Hillsborough, Oregon. Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. Our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so each weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please visit our website at www.isunrise.com, I-S-O-N-R-I-S-E.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you, grow along the journey of life with others, develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost, and then learn how to lead other people to know Jesus Christ. Now, on to our weekend message. Well, if you're new with us at Sunrise, we're on a journey through the book of Matthew. And on average, we're looking about 12 or so verses a week. So we've been doing this for over a year. This is message 62, okay? Uh, There are 71, so we're almost there. We're going to hit the resurrection at Easter. And hey, I'll give you a little heads up. I invited a friend, a guest, to come speak for Easter for us. In fact, he resisted at first. He said, oh, James, I, 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 I never speak at Easter. I just go to church. I don't want to take anybody's pulpit. I said, we don't have a pulpit. You can have my platform. So Luis Palau is going to come and speak for us at Easter. Very excited. He's really excited. And um, he's like 140, but he is like, no, I think he's maybe, I don't know what he is, but he's like energized. He was so, we were having dinner and he was so excited. And so we are going to have some advertisement for that. And we are going to really obviously share the gospel in the way that Luis does call for response. It's been a couple years since he's been here. It's going to be a perfect opportunity to invite your lost, disconnected from God friends. And so we'll have some stuff for you on that. And that's the resurrection. Then we'll wrap it up a couple weeks later and start a series of the book of Psalms. But why we're in the book of Matthew is because we are seeing the gospel story of Jesus from a Jewish perspective. If you've studied the difference between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, they each have a perspective. And Matthew, uh, as a Jew writing to Jews, he brings out the Jewish cultural aspects that most of us miss because we're Gentiles and it's 2,000 years after the fact. So I've loved and enjoyed this series through Matthew because we're seeing Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. Now that's why we've called our series, this series called Welcoming the King, because that's the attitude of the Jewish religious people at the time. They were excited about a king coming in. Unfortunately, Jesus didn't match up to their expectation. We'll get to that in weeks to come. If you kind of go back a little bit, and if you're a Bible history person, you understand this and you've probably studied it. But the Old Testament closes. The end of the Old Testament wraps up with the Jewish people coming back into the land. Well, why did they leave? Well, they had disobeyed God because of their rebellion. God had sent them away. And the last of the group he sent away to Babylon. We looked at that. We looked at the book of Daniel before the Matthew series, Believers in Babylon. So God frees them from Babylonian rule and allows them to come back to their homeland, to Israel. Well, in doing so, God uses three people to do three distinct things. Okay. First of all, he brings a guy named Zerubbabel. 
that's an awesome name. Okay, I'm not going to name my son that. Zerubbabel. And, and that's an easy one to remember because his whole mission is to rebuild the temple, which is in rubble. Okay, all right. Not Barney, but Zerubbabel. Okay, so he rebuilds the temple. And then he uses this guy named Ezra to restore the law in the hearts of the people. So he comes and basically brings the law back and reads the law, which they haven't seen for so many years. And then finally, the last guy that shows up is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah comes in to restore and rebuild the walls. So here you have Jerusalem, which had been completely destroyed by the Babylonians. The wall had been knocked down. The temple had been destroyed. People had been carted away. They had forgotten God's law. Now they have their temple. Now they have God's law. Now they have walls around them for safety. And then the Old Testament closes. And if you've ever noticed that between the Old Testament and the New Testament on your Bible is like one page, right? It's like one page. It's so thin. But so much goes on in that one page. It's 400 years between the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. And if you just open the New Testament after reading the Old Testament, you have a lot of questions like... Who are these Romans and what are they doing in God's land? You know, who are the Pharisees? Who are the Sadducees? Who are all these people? What's going on? Why aren't the Jews living in splendor? God brought them back. They had their kingdom given back to them. Where's their king? Where's their military? They wanted to be like the old days when David and Solomon, you know, ruled. They had an actual throne and they had a kingdom. And they had a strong military might. Why isn't that going on? What's wrong? Why are they under subjection of a foreign power? Why does somebody else control their coming and going? Why do they have to get permission for certain high holy things? Why do they have these invaders, these Roman soldiers that are controlling the crowds? Why aren't they free? Why aren't they the people of God like it used to be? Where's their kingdom? And most importantly, where's their king? Now, they were asking that same question. See, if you can study the history and you can understand as they came back into the land, they continued to struggle and disobey God. And foreign invaders came in again and again. It's our story. Let's, let's not blame them for this story. We have the same story. We all struggle in our relationship with God. We flounder in that. God promises things and we kind of go up and we go down. In the nation... By the time Jesus shows up on the scene to reveal himself as the king, as the Messiah, everybody wanted to be free. But everybody had a different idea about how that was going to go on. And so we've seen these groups. We've talked about these, especially in the stories of Jesus as he's gotten to Jerusalem. We see Jesus come back into the land, into the city of Jerusalem, and everybody's shouting out Hosanna to the son of David. Well, everybody wanted the son of David to come back. We're going to talk about that tonight. But the reason they wanted the son of David to come back was because they wanted to be free. They wanted to be free. Now, the groups of people that lived in the land, they all had their own idea on what this king was going to be like. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, it uses the term Messiah. In the New Testament, in Greek, it uses the term Christ. Now, I was one of those guys as a kid who thought that Christ was Jesus' last name. I didn't know that, right? Like Smokey the Bear, you know? Uh, So, Jesus Christ. Well, Christ is a title. And it's from the Greek meaning anointed one. Messiah is the same title, but from Hebrew meaning the anointed one. And literally, that's what they would do. In the Old Testament, when they would appoint a person, or a person would be chosen by God for a special place, they would pour 
oil on them to anoint them. Sounds kind of weird if you ask me. I've been under cars changing oil and when it pours on me, I don't feel anointed. Okay. I'm not feeling special. Okay. It's filthy. All right. But the idea was when a prophet or a priest or a king was put in place, this oil of blessing was poured over them and it was this anointing of God. And they were all waiting for this anointed one, this king to show up. Now, we've seen some of these groups. We've seen the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they've been arguing with Jesus. They control the temple. They're in complete power. They are the only ones who are giving the sacrifices. So ultimately, all of the worship of the nation had to go through them. And they were as secular as could be. They were specific in their choice of scripture. They only believed Moses writing the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So if it wasn't in there, Deuteronomy, if it wasn't in there, then they didn't believe it. And so in there, there's not a whole lot talking about the Messiah. I mean, Moses hints at it. It's kind of cool. But since there wasn't anything specifically written, the Sadducees didn't want a Messiah. In fact, a Messiah would come and mess everything up because they had this system. They partnered with Rome. They cooperated with Rome. They compromised with Rome. They got money from Rome. Rome kept them in power. It's a nice little system, right? Well, the Pharisees, they were the big religious group who Jesus often battles with. We're going to see that next week. It's the whole chapter 23. It's awesome. And so as Jesus battles with these guys, they have correct belief, but their practice is wrong. They're hypocrites. The Pharisees really wanted a Messiah. They really wanted a king. And they thought that the king, the Messiah, was going to come in and be a military ruler to throw out the Romans so they could finally worship in peace. There was another group that the Bible doesn't really talk about called the Essenes. And they were the group of men that pulled out from the worship of the temple, went out into the desert, and they set up little cities, little communities to be the pure and holy people of God. They were the separatists. They were the fundamentalists of their day that said the only way God's ever going to show up is if we go out and create a place of perfect purity. Now, we believe those are the the guys that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls out in Qumran and some other areas. And so they were really strict about this. You can read in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls about this battle of light and darkness, about the sons of God battling the sons of darkness. And it's it's a, a lot of it sounds like the book of Revelation. So they were anticipating the Messiah come. But the Messiah was only going to come if they prepared a holy place for him. And then the final group, they're the zealots. The zealots are the people with a lot of zeal, right? That's how it works out. I love these guys because they are, uh, that is probably going to sound wrong when I tell you who they were. They were the religious extremists. They were the terrorists of the day. Okay, I do not advocate terrorism. But they said if Jesus is going to be the Messiah or the son of David is going to show up, it's going to be because we grab a sword and we stick a Roman. It's like, there's some weird theology right there, right? God wants you to power your way through. So they were always, always attacking the Romans. They were attacking the Sadducees because the Sadducees, they were as corrupt as could be. They were actually an offshoot of the Pharisees. So they were super religious and their whole goal was just to get rid of Rome through military might. And if you study Jewish history, Several times these zealots rose up. And in fact, the whole reason why after Jesus in about the year 68 to 70 AD, the Jews are expelled from the Holy Land for, well, since 1948 was because of the zealots. The Jews through the zealots, the sword had finally upset Rome so much that Rome came in and wiped them up and once once again, blew up the city, blew up the temple, destroyed the walls, and it lay in just disrepair for 
almost 2,000 years now. They wanted Jesus to be a military guy, to come in riding on a horse, swinging a sword. Now you can understand then why Jesus was a disappointment. Jesus was a disappointment to the Sadducees, to the Pharisees, to the Essenes, to the Zealots. Jesus came in as a Messiah, but not in the way they wanted. If I could be honest, I think we do that sometimes. Don't we get disappointed with God? We have hopes, we have expectations. We read in the Bible, we pray our prayers, we do certain things in our life, and we have these expectations that God's going to deliver. He's going to show up in certain ways. And when he doesn't do that, we're disappointed in God. And so we're a lot like the people of Jesus' day. We think God is here for us. God's here to serve us. God's here to accomplish our vision and goals because God wants to do it through us. And so he has to come down and fill out our agenda and flesh it out. And in many ways, we're just like the people that didn't get Jesus. Well, today we're going to see, I think it's a really cool scene, the last of the conversations that Jesus has with the religious people. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Matthew 22. We're going to finish the chapter. Matthew 22, it's on page 753 in your chair Bible. We're going to wrap up the last story. And the reason I like this so much, this is super cool, uh, because Jesus has answered all of the religious people's questions, and there is a pause, because they have just shut their mouths. They don't know what to say. And then Jesus asks a question. This is the first time we see Jesus asking a question. Jesus has come into the city. Everybody has paraded. Wearing the, you know, throwing the palm branches down, taking their coats and throwing them down for Jesus to walk on. They've called him the son of David. He's come in. He's cleaned the temple out. And in that last week, he's argued with the religious people as they try to test him. They try to put him on the spot. They try to get him to trip up on something. And now, now Jesus in this lull gets to ask a question. Now, he asks a really weird question. It's like, come on, Jesus. You could just like punch him. You're, it's like, just, like, just, you're done, right? Just lay him flat. Well, he does, but it's kind of confusing. So let's open this up and see. Then surrounded by the Pharisees, that's that religious group that had all the rules. Jesus asked them a question. Good question, Jesus. What do you think about the Messiah? That's the question. They all thought about the Messiah. What do you think about the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one to come? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now you think that's kind of a, what do you mean whose son is he? You know, wouldn't you ask, when is he going to show up? What gate is he going to come into Jerusalem? You know, what time period? What is he going to do? Where is he going to dwell? What's the kingdom going to look like? Jesus asked this question. Whose son is he? Now, that was a a no-brainer for them as religious people because they reply, he's the son of David. Now, that's the term, the title that the people had worshipped with Jesus. They had said, you're the son of David. Oftentimes, when Jesus healed people, they called out to the son of David. That was a messianic term. They called out to him because they believed Jesus to be the Messiah. But why the son of David? Why not the son of Moses or something like that, right? Well, in the Old Testament, when God had found favor with David, God sent a prophet named Nathan to speak to David and to make a promise. And this is what it says. This Nathan prophet came up. 
He said, the Lord declares, after showing all these promises, furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you. A house, a dynasty of kings. This term house uh, means this ongoing succession of. It's kind of funny because uh, people that even maybe say they like the Bible but don't really believe the Bible and people that are antagonistic toward the Bible in archaeology have uh, for, for years, for many, many years, argued that David wasn't a real character. That it was good in the Bible but he wasn't true. Until... <laughs> Shucks, they found a stone (laughs) that talked about the house of David. And that meant the dynasty, the lineage of David. So David shows up in the historical record. I'll build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, check this out. I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring. So this is going to be a human being. All right. A physical human being. And I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name. And I will secure his royal throne forever. Now, wait a second. And I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, he's a physical human being. But at the end of this prophecy, God says, it's going to be not just some guy. I'm going to be his father and he's going to be my son. Now, I, I understand that and because I've, I've witnessed to, to Jewish folks that are strong in their faith um, that the Old Testament has a lot of stories and a lot of verses that talk about God and God's son it doesn't just show up, you know, in the beginning. John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. In the Old Testament, there's this idea of God having a son, but it's like time out. God can't have a son, right? Because he's God. God, the father is a spirit. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit is a spirit. And God, Jesus, before he comes in the flesh is a spirit, right? And now he takes on this body. So God is a spirit. So how can God have a son? Well, if you read the Bible, you discover that God uses all kinds of what we call anthropomorphic terms, terms about humanity. God says, by my strong right arm. Oh, that was left. My strong right arm, right? Uh, Well, guess what? God doesn't have an arm. He's a spirit. Uh, My eyes roam the earth. It's like his eyeballs don't roam around the earth, right? He doesn't have eyes like we think of. He, he, He talks... About his feet planted firmly. So what God is doing is he's using our own pictures, our metaphors, our relationships, our descriptions to talk about himself. Okay. And in the same way, he talks about his son. Now, the reality is, is the son of God and the concept of God having a son is in the same way a picture Now, ultimately, Jesus came down and was born in the flesh. And so he was a son, son of Joseph, the carpenter. But in a spiritual sense, the father God sends Jesus to the earth. And so he's the sent one showing a relationship of a father son. Okay, so it's proper to say, who is Jesus? He's God's son. But let's not get so specific and think that the father God bore a baby son. They're equal, Father, Son, Spirit. They're part of the Trinity. 
All right. Now, my, my sons asked me a while ago, I think it was Josiah, said, Dad, what is a cult? And so I said, anybody that doesn't believe like me. No. Um, I, I said, I said well, what a cult is, is any religion, even offshoot of Christianity. And here's the number one thing that takes Jesus and makes him less than God. And some people, I'll, 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 I'll make statements here, okay? Um, some people, um, people like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, um, other people, I would even say in, in a Jewish belief or an Islamic belief, uh, there, there's no way Jesus is pure God. And so if you make Jesus less than God, that's not what the Bible says, even if it sounds like Christianity. Jesus isn't a God, he is he is God. And the Bible describes God as Father, Son, and Spirit, the first, second, third people of the Trinity. This God had this union together. Now, that's, that's super complicated, but they're one in essence. And so, David is told he's going to have a dynasty. He's going to have a son, ultimately. He's going to be physically born, but he's also going to be spiritually related to God. And so that's what Jesus goes to. Take a look at this. Jesus then asks the question. Then why does David? This is from Psalm 110 verse 1. Then why does David speaking under the inspiration of the spirit call the Messiah my Lord? For David said, the Lord said to my Lord, set in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. This is, this is beautiful. First of all, just a little side note. Look what, look what Jesus says. David inspired by the spirit. So Jesus is saying there's a Holy Spirit and he inspires the writings. Our Bibles are inspired by God. Okay. And he calls him the Lord. This, if you've ever noticed in an English Bible, if it's all caps, you know, lower caps, that's the name Yahweh. We sang about earlier, the personal name for God. Uh, Some Bibles call him Jehovah, but it's Yahweh. So Yahweh said to my Lord. Now this in the original language is Adonai, which is also a term for God or a term for respect to a superior. So this is what Jesus is asking. And by the way, you've got the father, you've got the son, and you've got the spirit all in this passage in the Old Testament. This is really cool that Jesus talks about now. And by the way, uh, people who study these things and are a whole lot smarter than me, but don't believe in Jesus, they go, oh, this could not have been written by David. This was written many, many years later. And the reason they said it is because it came true. And since there's no God and no miraculous, it can't have, but it was written. Jesus himself affirms it. Okay. If anybody says, I don't really believe the Jonah thing. I don't know how it happened, but there was a guy that was swallowed by this great fish. Guess what? Jesus affirmed it. And if anybody can predict their death, burial, and resurrection and pull it off. I'm with that guy, okay? So if Jesus says Jonah exists, I'm there, all right? Jesus says God created male and female, I'm there. Jesus said Holy Spirit inspired David, I'm there. Now check it out. Yahweh said to Adonai, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Now this is what Jesus is getting at. This is a really cool passage. A little cryptic, but really cool. Jesus says, if the Messiah is going to be the son of David, then why would David say he's superior? Why would David call him Lord? Now, they don't have an answer to this, but look what Jesus is saying. Father God spoke to the son. This is David under the inspiration of the spirit saying, 
the Lord, Father, spoke to Jesus, the Son, and said, sit in the place of honor at my right hand. Now, in my family, my boys call shotgun, okay, in the car. I don't know if you have arguments over that and fights, but it's like when we get out there and there's shotgun rules and you got to see the car, you know, you got to be inside, you know what I mean? And then if two people call at the same time, you know, I don't know, we like fist to cuff. I don't know what we do. Okay, but it's like, I want to sit in the right seat, all right? I want to sit next to the driver. All right, I'd like to think it's because they want to sit next to dad, but I'm a realist. Okay, and so it's like that. A king would sit on a throne and he would have a right hand. He would have a, a next in command. And if the king were either gone or preoccupied, he would give all the authority to his right hand. And so Father God says to Jesus, set in the place of honor at my right hand. Until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. I, I was just reading this in, in my book, reading through Judges. And Judges is a, well, it's a very dark, horrible book. All kinds of things go on there in the book of Judges. But as they're conquering the land, these five kings come together to fight Joshua. And they lose. Joshua seals them up in a cave. And then they kill everybody else. And it is bloody. And so then they open the cave. And they bring the five people out. And Joshua stands on their neck and kills them. All right? It's not a good bedtime story for your kids, all right? Okay. But that was a picture of complete authority and rulership of. And what, what is going on here, what David is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit and what Jesus is referring to is that Jesus is the one on the right hand of the Father and that there is going to be a day when all of the enemies, sin, destruction, Satan, all his demons, all that, will one day be completely removed from their power and be destroyed. And Jesus will be the victor. Now, a lot of that was accomplished spiritually on the cross for our sins, but one day Jesus is coming back and he's cleaning everything up. Now, since David called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? So that's a beautiful question Jesus asks. Because he's asking the people about who am I, really? He's really asking, who am I? Who do you see me as? He's declaring himself to be a Messiah. He's declaring himself to be the son of God. Now, when you go through the rest of the story, you see they reject him. We're going to see this in weeks to come. They rebel against God. They send Jesus to the cross on this, this, this horrible way to die. And yet the father God pours all of our sin on his son Jesus because he was a perfect Messiah. He was the son of David of the physical descendant. You see that in Matthew and Luke, the lineages, that's why that's important. And so he was able to be a suffering servant, but he wasn't just a man. He was God. So he came as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, the pure and spotless lamb, the one of all time. And so in the flesh and in the spirit, Jesus is this God man. He's this combination. And he physically died on a cross bearing the weight of our sin. And then he's resurrected. And that's why the disciples went around telling everybody everywhere that he's the one and the only one who could save us. In fact, take a look at these, these verses here. I'm going to wrap this up. I like this. No one could answer him. And after that, they put their tails between their legs and ran away. Okay. No one dared ask him any more questions. That's an awesome response there. Okay. And so then uh, Jesus himself said in um, 
the book of John chapter 14, verse six, he said this, he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. By the way, I don't know, um, you know, what school you went to. I went to a California school, which really is embarrassing. Um, but no one means no one. All right. Pretty simple. Even a California kid can understand that. No one can come to the father except through me. That I am the only way, I'm the only truth. I'm not one of the ways, one of the truths. One, I am the only way. That means that no matter what religious beliefs are out there, if you don't go through Jesus, you don't get to the Father. Because Jesus is not one of the ways, one of the truths, one of the lives. He is the. In fact, then later on, the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, explode, go out and tell everybody. And, and this is the religious leaders they're speaking to. There is salvation in no one else. No, no one, meaning no one. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so that is the reality of Jesus. Paul, the apostle Paul, who later sees Jesus, is visited by Jesus on the road to Damascus and encounters him, falls down before him, leaves his life of being a Pharisee and ends up becoming a disciple of Jesus and one of the greatest missionary uh, endeavor movement guys that we've ever known in history. Uh, he later says this in the book of Philippians. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That's the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus. And now look at this. Though he was God, this is affirming his deity. He's God of all gods. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He didn't become less than God, but he didn't exercise all of the authority and power he could have. He submitted. He humbled himself. Literally, it means he emptied himself for you and for me. He took the humble position of a slave, a servant, a human being, was born as a human being. He's the God man, the one who suffers and dies, who lives a perfect life because he's God and the only one worthy. To cover our sins. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And here's the beautiful part. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, the right hand of God, and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the Pharisees, I mean, the rest of the group, but specifically speaking to the Pharisees, they didn't catch this. I mean, even his disciples didn't catch this, right? Nobody caught this right away. And Jesus came down, God in the flesh, made his living dwelling among us, as the message says, moved into our neighborhood, took up residence among us, lived a perfect, sinless life, died a perfect death, bearing all of our sin on the cross. And he's the only one who could do it as perfect God and perfect man. And he went to that cross, carrying that sin for us because his, his love for us is beyond measure. And he didn't just die. He rose again. And that's the beauty of this good news, this gospel story, is that if God has that kind of power, there is nothing he can't do in your life if you humble yourself and submit yourself to him. But I think the real question 
that we've got to ask, and I think each person has to ask is, okay, so who's Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to me? Now, I declare to you as a pastor, a student of the Bible, that Jesus is God's son. But what does that mean for you? What does it mean for me? Just a couple quick thoughts here. I've written down. Uh, Sometimes we come to Jesus asking us to forgive us and give us a new life, save us from the fires of hell kind of thing. But then we want to go live our lives however we want. And in essence, we want him to be our savior, but not our Lord. I'll take it from here. All right. Thanks for cleaning everything up. I'm in charge. And we, as Christians, use and abuse what God has done on the cross. Um, Other times, you know, we want God to come in. We want Jesus to come in and we're desperate and we're praying. Okay, fix my marriage, fix my finances, fix my bratty teenage kid. You know what I mean? Fix, fix my thing. I've broken, I've blown it up. Come and fix it. And we're expecting God to just be our servant, our our Santa Claus, a a soda machine. We put a buck in and get a pop out of it, right? That's all we expect God to be. But for me, the question is, not is God here to serve us, but if we come to the point where we are willing to fall down before him, humble ourselves and call him who he is, Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, the only one who came, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, to die for our sins and open up an opportunity for us to live forever with him. Not just to get forgiveness of sins, which is awesome. Not, not just to get an eternity with him, which is unbelievable. But even today to have a living, breathing relationship with the God of all the earth. I've got my friend Brad. He's going to come up. Brad is a dear friend. I've known Brad for, well, all I can say is Brad has stories on me um, for a long time. And um, I've invited Brad to say a few words and draw us to a close in prayer before the worship team comes. Thanks, James. I, uh, I think about my own story growing up. Um, in a church and just having a view of Jesus that, that was sort of like James said, where I want to do things for me, but I kind of want to do what I want to do. And, um, and it really came down to a counselor at camp. He really challenged me. Uh, he dedicated his life to God. He was volunteering his summer and he loved people and he really had a sense of purpose and he was happy. And, and and he just he knew God in a way I, I had never really experienced, and um, and I just said, man, I, that's what I want. It took me a little bit, but I realized that's what I've been looking for. And maybe today is just an opportunity for you um, to just examine your own heart and say, God, <clears throat> Jesus, who are you to me? Are you just Savior but not Lord? I don't trust you. I don't see you as as the coming king, as the one that every knee is going to bow to, every tongue going to confess. Um, God of eternity, God that, that matters above all else. The Pharisees and others um, often were living their life in fear of people, trying to please people. So they couldn't make a decision about Jesus for themselves because they feared man over God. 
And I see, uh, in my experience, inviting people uh, to, to respond to Jesus, uh, when you feel God's presence, because uh, He's here tonight, and you hear His voice, it helps you to put everyone else aside. It's just you and God in the room, and you get a chance to make a choice. Like, what do I really believe about God? Do I want Him to be my King, my Lord? Do I want Him to have my life? And when you come to know Jesus for who He really is, that's really the only response you can give. So tonight, uh, we're just going to pray. Uh, I think I just appreciate James sharing and being willing to say what God says, what Jesus says about Himself, and inviting us into that. And maybe you realize that you've uh, you've not made Him your Savior and Lord, and you want to do that tonight. And I want to give you a chance to ask Him and say, God, take my life. You're the only one that deserves it. You made me. You created me. And if you came and gave your life for me, you definitely love me more than I even love myself. And that's what Jesus did. And now you're preparing a place for me. And now you have a whole life for me prepared. God says He has plans for your life in Christ Jesus, but He's got to make you a new heart. He's got to make you a new creation. Maybe you've been trying to do this Christian thing and it hasn't worked. You've tried to fix your marriage, all these things. God help me. But now you realize, i just got to surrender to Him and let Him do it. I gotta, I gotta let him be Lord, because that's the only time, the only way he's gonna really do what he wants to do in your life and and give you the life that that he made for you. So let's pray, shall we? Let's just stand up. Would you stand up right where you're at? Um, and um, you know, some of you, um, maybe you need to pray. This is the first time you realize this. You're kind of convicted. God's speaking to you. Others, you. This is kind of a rededication. That's okay. We're all gonna pray together because it's really the same prayer, whether it's once or twice. Uh, it doesn't matter. This is today. And, and from this day forward, you can call on Him as Savior and Lord. So let's just pray. I'm going to pray for fairies, and then you, you can pray in your own words, because this has to be your heart. There's no magical formula. It's just you calling out to God. The Bible says, confess through your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, and you will be saved. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, so first, we're just going to admit that we need Him. And we're going to say, God, I admit... I repent of the way I've looked at you, the way I've treated you. Just pray that, God, I repent. I'm sorry. I want to turn from living life for myself. I want to turn to you. I give you, God, I give you my life. I can't fix it. I can't change it. I need you, Jesus. And then you're going to, you're going to say, I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead, and that you're alive, and that you're Lord. And then I confess you as my Savior and Lord today. Just, I confess you, God. I give you everything. Take my life. Fill me with yours. Come into me, God. And make me a new creation. I want to, I want to be ready when you return, Jesus, as the King. I make you my King and my Savior today. And just as you promise, I thank you that I am saved. I belong to you. Amen.